We've been to all four corners of Britain in our quest to interview the great and good of entertainment. Comics, actors, writers, politicians, singers, dancers and choreographers. It doesn't matter who they are. They've all given me their own take on the world they live in and have, in their own way, helped to define what makes Britain great. So join me and my assistants as we get another insight into the marvellous and enigmatic world of showbiz here on Beyond the Title. Holding the world records for the 100, 200, 400, 800 and 1500 metres in their classification and the Paralympic records at 100, 200, 400 and 800 metres, Paralympian Hannah Cockcroft made her Paralympic debut at the London 2012 Games where she won two gold medals. Just a year later, Hannah was named on the shortlist for the 2013 BBC Sports Personality of the Year in acknowledgement of her victory in the T33, T34 100m race at the Anniversary Games in London. This was followed up with a further three gold medals at the 2016 Summer Paralympics in Rio de Janeiro. In 2017, she became world champion over the 800m and 400m, making her a 10-time world champion and the most decorated British athlete in world championship history. I caught up with a decorated Paralympian to talk success, fame and her recollections on an unprecedented career in British sport. Ladies and gentlemen, Hannah Cockcroft. So, uh, growing up with a disability in a mainstream world can obviously have its challenges. What was the hardest obstacle you were forced to overcome? Yeah, I think... I, I don't really look back on my childhood as, as overcoming obstacles. Um, I I grew up completely surrounded by able-bodied people. Uh, I was the only disabled person I knew, so I never really thought that I was different. I just did what everyone else did. Um, I guess it's silly, but the only the only obstacle that got in my way was was sport. I was you know anything active, I was immediately turned away from. Immediately told you know. It's, it's not for you. You can't do that. You know, you're disabled. You can't do sport. Um, and I think that's probably what drove me to do what I do. You know, I'm an athlete, so it's probably why I do that. Um, but yeah, like growing up, the only obstacles I, I just saw as, as opportunities to prove people wrong. You know, when I was born, uh, doctors told my parents that I would never walk and I'd probably never talk, um, which is something that they wish was true every single day. But um, yeah, you know, I took my first steps when I was three years old and I can't walk long distances and I use a wheelchair outside. Um, and, you know, I live a fully independent life. So um, I think I always found a way to overcome any anything anyone put in my way. <laughs> Absolutely. was just saying it's a bit like him he's obviously grown up with his disability and you know around able-bodied people as well and he's also always tried to get involved with anything they're doing anyway so it always seemed just normal like to try and take part in things and for the best part of your life really you've been able to do what you want to do really yeah. haven't you so yeah 
Yeah. yeah, I think I think you have to do that. You know, I think people are too quick to put science and medical things on top of you and not just wait and see what you grow into and what you can do. You know, I, I didn't meet another disabled person until I was 12 years old. So as far as I knew, I was the only disabled person in the world. And, uh, you know, that was fine. I was, I was just it so I could just get on with it. And yeah, I don't know what I like. We can do what we want, so it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> That's a bit like you living on the island, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, growing up on the Isle of Wight, like Josh has, um, there's also almost like a stigma. He's saying that just he was like a disabled child, and as soon as he knew another disabled child, it was like, oh, you must know so and so who's also disabled. There was just like a small community of just you know a handful of disabled children on the island growing up, and oh, you must know who that person is. You it is, yeah. <laughs> For some reason, people think we all know each other. Like, oh, you're in a wheelchair. You must know whoever. And the embarrassing thing is, 99% of the time, I do know them. So it looks like we all know each other. But I think, as well, I'm really bad for... I didn't, I didn't really understand it to begin with. Like, when I first met disabled people, they went, oh, what sport do you do? I was like, I don't, I don't do sport, I'm disabled. And now I, I look, you know, I go past someone in the street and I think, oh, I wonder what sport they do. They look like a basketball player. They look like a swimmer. They look like this. I don't know. There's this assumption that every disabled person is a para-athlete of some description and we all know each other. We're all, you know, we're such a tight-knit community. I think people forget there are literally millions of us. <laughs> we're everywhere. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Okay, um, moving on. Making your Olympic debut at the London 2012 Games, I imagine, was a special moment. How do you think this event was the catalyst to raising the profile of the international Paralympic sports? London 2012, was it was just something else. Um, and I only really realise that now. Now I'm further down, now I've done another Paralympics. Um, at the time, I just thought London 2012 was what Paralympics was. You know, it was incredible it was surreal you know we had 80,000 people two sessions a day for 10 whole days um we had people you know we had Paralympians on the front of every newspaper every magazine on the news it, it just took over the, the country it was amazing and I just you know as a naive 20 year old thought all right that's what Paralympics is cool all right and then I obviously went to Rio and learned that actually London was a big deal London was something that could never have been expected and I think I think the big thing was that we obviously got the amazing TV coverage uh, from Channel 4 and just having that round the clock para sport being pushed out there just made people a little bit more comfortable around us I think it made people understand disability a bit better it made them realize that you know every disability is different and every single one of us is different so what we're doing when we're out there you can't really compare one athlete to the next, not even in the same race, because we are all completely unique. Um, 
and also they weren't they weren't afraid of, of pushing it you know pushing it in the sense that obviously before um I, I hope people saw the campaign because I'm part of it. But um, they had obviously the Superhumans campaign going into London 2012, where it said thanks for the warm up. You know, Channel Four weren't afraid to be cheeky. They weren't afraid to kind of push their luck a bit and and upset people. Um, and then we obviously had the last leg as well, which made people realise that oh, disabled people are humans. They just like to have a laugh and they have a life, and you know they do sport and they go out with their friends, and that that's great. And I really think that 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 was what changed Paralympic sport for a lot of people. You know, people didn't feel sorry for us anymore. They either laughed at us the way that we can laugh at ourselves or they just were enthralled with what we were doing. You know, they were looking at us as elite athletes, which is which is what we are. You know, I don't know why I sound surprised by that. But um, <laughs> I think, you know, for a long time, the Paralympics were just a pity games, you know. People will always say to me, "Oh, you're in, you're in the other Olympics. Oh, you're in the the one after the Olympics." No, I'm in the Olympics. I'm yeah. just two weeks after. <laughs> Not a difference. Yeah. So, um, I think that's that's how London changed it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, 2012 was a great year for you, beginning with breaking the record for the T3400 metres in London, and then again at the Swiss National Championships later that month, finishing in 17.6 seconds. How was this the perfect springboard to such a defining year in your athletics career? You remember the year better than me. <laughs> um, yeah, I think I hadn't been in the sport that long. I'd been in the sport for five years when I went to London 2012, so... I think at that point in an athlete's career, you're still you're still learning things. You're still, you know, there's still so much you can do and change in your technique and your practice and your training and everything you do that the improvements just come. So to be honest, those improvements had had year on year. So it wasn't a surprise to break world record. It wasn't a surprise to go and win a race. Um, it's just what I expected from myself, which probably sounds really big headed, but the, the my classification at the time was still developing and there wasn't that much competition especially within britain um so the competitions that i actually competed at were, were not what we saw you know definitely not what we see now but not what we saw at london 2012 that was not my usual lineup um but i mean i was the first i brought the first ever world record in the london stadium so feel like you know it was it was nice to be making history before the games had even started I think it, it set it up well for me um, and it made me have a bit of a presence before the games even started um, I was just you know at that point a 19 year old girl from Halifax who you know wasn't wasn't anything in Beijing you know I wasn't there I wasn't racing I wasn't anything to do with the sport and I've come through and um, it just shows what opportunity can do so yeah 2012 was Quite a special year, the whole of it. <laughs> yeah. On 31st of August 2012, you won Great Britain's first track gold medal since 2004. What impact did the Home Paralympics have on the success? Oh, yeah. First first track medal on the track. First track medal on the track? What medal? about? First medal on the track uh, in quite a few years was... I obviously didn't know that, you know, when I won the medal, I was just winning the medal. Um, and then I, I kind of learned that later on. I know that the team had an absolutely terrible time in Beijing. We won one gold medal, 
in the whole athletics team, which is dire. <laughs> um, so, yeah, pretty tough. I think the last wheelchair racing gold medal before me, uh, female-wise, had been Tanya Gray Thompson. So it was quite a good, uh, quite a good crown to try and take, I think. Um, but you know what? None of it mattered when I was there. It was gold. It been what I'd been training for for so long, what I'd dreamt of for so long. Yeah. And I tell you what, just just it being a home games, nothing beats it. I can't even put it into words. Like the noise in that stadium was deafening. And you kind of felt like you couldn't come last because, I don't know, they were going to cheer for you, whatever you did. Yeah. But I just knew that that was my moment and I had to take it and, and believe in myself, really. Um, I think all the other things that come with a medal are nice, but really, I'm, ever since then, I've just been in it for the gold. And I got that. <laughs> yeah, this is a bit like you know the next question that we've got lined up for you. Um, you mentioned a very famous name. So in what, <laughs> in what ways did athletes such as Tanny Gray Thompson help break down the barriers of Paralympic sport? I think, you know, obviously prior to me, prior to me, again, it sounds really big-headed, prior to London 2012 where the likes of myself and Johnny Peacock and Rich Whitehead and, you know, all my teammates kind of became household names. I think people could name three disabled people in the world, and they were Tani, Adia Depitan, and Ellie Simmons. Uh, that was that was kind of it. Um, but they broke down those barriers by being the three names that people could name. They put, you know, Tani put my sport on the map. She was the first person that I met that did sport. Uh, she took me under her wing and, and kind of taught me how to start and, and where to go. So, you know, I could never be more thankful to her for what she gave me at the start of my career. But you only notice it now, you know, we were, we were talking about how far the Paralympics have come because of London 2012. Prior to that, the fight must have been so, so hard just to get your name out there, to get people to recognise what you're doing, you know. Um, Tani was nominated for Sports Personality of the Year in, like, 1998, I want to say, something like that, 96, 98. She came third and there wasn't a ramp onto the stage, which is just ridiculous but at that time it probably wasn't even thought about no. so for her to you know she had to you know put up with that ignorance so that now when we go to awards and we go to dinners and you know whatever we turn up at we feel included um and without those those names preceding us we'd be having those fights now and i don't know if i'd be as polite as she probably was <laughs> <laughs> definitely <laughs> Okay, so in 2014, you took part in a special Paralympic edition of Strictly Come Dancing, partnering Pasha Kovalev. How do you think this inspired TV producers to think more creatively about the inclusion of disabled celebrities in entertainment programming? Being part of the comic release Strictly Come Dancing was, it was another game changer, really, um, that I probably didn't appreciate at the time. Um, but everyone now goes, oh, Johnny was the first Paralympian. And I'm like, no, I was. I was on the show first. Um, I, don't, I don't know if it encouraged them to keep putting us on. We were hard work. They were, there was myself, uh, Nathan Stevens, 
there was Martin and there was there was David, a footballer. Um, so two wheelchairs, an amputee, and a blind guy. And um, honestly, I have never worked harder than that week of training. It was it was a one-off, um, obviously, because it was a charity special. Um, and I only had to learn half a dance. And we literally danced like 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. every day for a week to learn that half a dance. And I still forgot half of it when I got on the stage. So um, it wasn't as successful as it probably looked. I think it was some camera trickery making it look good. But um, yeah. I think doing that made people I think it made them realize that people wanted to watch us do things like that you know again it was very much like London 2012 the fact that we are just normal people we're not afraid to make mistakes to make a fool of ourselves we're there for charity we're just having a bit of fun um we were probably the hardest people ever to train um you know the poor dance teachers had obviously never done dancing in wheelchairs and, and trying to teach a, a blind guy how to do steps that he can't see it was baffling um, but they were absolutely Ooh. amazing with us and I think it I think the producers enjoyed it because it gave them a chance to be creative and uh, to yeah. try new things that maybe other people wouldn't have the patience to do um, mm -hmm. and obviously people tuned in and watched our show so uh, I think that was that ultimately that's what sells TV people watch it then they'll keep putting it on. So that's probably why they kept doing it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Okay. If you could educate people on only one thing about disability, what would it be? That's a hard question. If I could educate people on one thing about disability. I think if I could educate people on one thing about disability, it would be that disability isn't always what it presents itself as. So what you see is not always the main thing that's wrong. So um, for me, everyone just assumes that I'm spinal damaged um, because I'm a bit twisted and <laughs> my back's all curved. Actually, my disability is completely brain damaged. Um, and my nerves just don't send messages and, and whatever. So um but people just assume oh she's in a wheelchair so she just can't walk whereas actually you know i also can't write very well i can't tie my shoelaces uh there's there's loads of things i can't do but people just look at the cover and, and look up what's yeah. obvious what's on the um, yeah. so yeah I, I think if i could change one thing it's that people would understand how complex disability is and it's never just the one thing that you can see you know you might see an amputee but deep down there is something far more than just the leg that's missing that's wrong so you know don't shoot a book by its cover always ask how you can help and um and ultimately don't be nosy it's not always someone else's you know we don't always want to share our stories we don't always want people to ask well, what's wrong with you there's yeah. nothing wrong with me. I'm just, uh, just living my life and getting on with it. So, yeah, that that would be what I would change. I don't think it'll ever happen. <laughs> okay. Um, as a disabled person, Josh constantly feels the need to change others' perception of him in order to get them to treat him like everyone else. How do you think high-profile disabled people like yourself can help raise awareness that disabled people can function in the mainstream? 
I really feel a responsibility to try and change people's, con- you know, misconceptions of what disabled people are. You know, starting out and, and even now, to be fair, people don't recognise me, don't know who I am. Uh, people crouch down and talk in my face and lean on my wheelchair and do all the things that I just hate. You know, they don't talk to me, they talk to whoever's with me and all the all the common things that you find with disabled people, I think people have done to me. And I don't know, I kind of like going to different places, you know, obviously I do a bit of TV work, I've got races, I've got different countries, I speak at at lots of different events. I love going in and uh, on my own and and just talking to people. And it's it's amazing the amount of times that people are like, oh, oh, you you can do this for yourself. Like I've had people in the past go, oh, I don't really know how to talk to you because I've never met anyone in a wheelchair before. And I've been like, you could just talk to me like you talk to everyone else. That'd be fine. Yeah. I had yeah. someone ask me if I wanted a spoon to eat some popcorn. Um, no, nope, I could just eat it like you would eat it. I don't know anyone who eats popcorn with a spoon. Uh, <laughs> um, so, so, yeah, I feel a responsibility to kind of put that out there. I have a platform, you know, online and, and in the media and, and in my sport as well to show that you know, even though disabled people all have different struggles, most of the time we can do what other people do. And yeah. it's hard, you know, it's it's hard to try and spread a message for everyone. Um, I've just started a new role um, with the, the White Road Shopping Centre in Leeds, so a shopping centre in Leeds uh, as their accessibility officer. Straight away, people um, people jumped on Twitter saying like, oh, well, you'll only speak for, dis- for wheelchair users. You won't think of anybody else. And I was like, well... No, I won't. I understand. I understand disability. And if you just allow me time to try and make the changes, then I'll do my best. I obviously don't know everything about every disability. I don't think anybody does. But, you know, let's let's discuss it. Let's, um, you know, you tell me your problems and I can take them forward and I can do something about them. So, yeah, when someone comes to me with something they want to change, if I can use my voice for the better, then then I definitely will. Um Otherwise, we're never we're never going to make a change. Uh, looking back at your career, what's your proudest achievement? You ask really hard questions. <laughs> <laughs> my proudest achievement. My proudest achievement in my career. Oh, I don't know. I don't know if you know. Funnily enough, I think my proudest achievement in my career is. Um, in 2017, I was named uh, the British Sports Journalist Sportswoman of the Year. Um, let's all just take a minute to appreciate the lack of disabled sportswoman. I was a sportswoman without being disabled, which was quite nice. And um, I was the first Paralympian to ever, ever win it in its 58-year history. And this wasn't a popularity contest. It wasn't an online vote. It was mm-hmm. genuine journalists who follow our sport and who know everything about what everyone's doing. And they decided that that year I was the best sportswoman in the country. So it's not a medal. Um, but I think it was just, it, it's special to me because it was a culmination of a lot of work, a lot of years of hard work and, and all the medals put together. So yeah, that's probably my proudest moment. Yeah, really good. And what's next for Hannah Cockcroft? Well, 
I'd love to tell you what's next for Hannah Cockcroft, but um, that all depends on COVID, doesn't it? <laughs> um, hopefully, what's next is the Tokyo Paralympic Games. Uh, we're a year behind, but hopefully we'll get out there. Um, beyond that, we've got uh, World Championships in 2022 and, of course, a home Commonwealth Games, which will be my first ever Commonwealth Games. So that's just been announced that my event will be running there. So I'm excited for that. And then uh, we're only three years off Paris, but I have to focus on Tokyo first. But don't worry, there's plenty more in the pipeline. Thank you to our guest for being the subject of another Beyond the Title interview. If you liked this, why not browse the website and see if there's anything else that takes your fancy. Don't forget to like our Facebook page to receive updates on forthcoming interviews and to see more information about me and what I do. Thanks again and hopefully see you next time.